Baptism Sunday. Get pumped. Man, uh, we uh, got a lot to say, but there's uh, in the story of Zacchaeus, we'll read it later. Uh, when Zacchaeus meets Jesus, it says that he's, he's full of joy. He rejoiced. And man, that, if that doesn't describe Mike, I can't, I can't think of what else does. I mean, we're even sitting here trying to, we're trying to be quiet, but like Mike's like yelling, like, man, I forgot to say this. I forgot to say this. There's so many things he's excited about, about his story, about how God changed life. He's like, man, we, well, the video's over now. We can't reshoot it. But he actually, he might not want me to tell you guys this, but he called me yesterday and, and he was like, man, he's been reading this book that, that I gave him about, uh, just being a disciple following Jesus. He's like, man, I, I got so many new things to say. I wish I could word things differently. I wish I could express what's going on. I want to do another video in a year and explain what God's done in my life. I miss dude just excited. He's, he's just pumped. And if you, you ever want to know what it looks like for, for, to see a story of redemption, this is what we're talking about. Seeing God completely change people's lives. When Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel, repentance is a change of mind. And you see that happen. Mike sees the world completely differently because of Jesus, not because we've shoved some indoctrination into him, not because we've coerced him and twisted his arm, because he's met Jesus. Jesus is everything. When we do baptism, we always explain it because we want to make sure it's a weird symbol, right? It's a, it's a spiritual bath, and if you're not used to it, or maybe you just grew up seeing it, you might not quite understand what's going on. We want to understand what this is. Uh, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul says, If you profess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And at that time, saying Jesus is Lord was the opposite of saying Caesar is Lord. Caesar was the, the reigning authority of Rome, and, and Paul is saying, hey, if, you, if you're following Christ, you have to have some profession. You have to be able to say, I believe despite anything that could come against me, despite Rome as the power of the day or, or any, any Hebrew authority, I acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He's above everything. I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth. And so then in that, we've also seen examples of the Bible of being baptized. Jesus was baptized. Peter talks about being baptized to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to receive the Spirit in Acts 2. And so we do that. In obedience, we're baptized. This is not a uh, anything more than a symbol. It's an outward expression of an inward transformation. We were just, I was just telling Mike in the background, everyone's always nervous before a baptism. And that makes sense. People are nervous for weddings. You might be nervous for a big birthday bash or something. Things that are meaningful to us, we get nervous. And it's okay to be both peaceful and nervous. We'll talk about that later on today. But there's this nervousness that comes out because it's meaningful. And we got to pray back there. I told him, listen. As long as you walk in these waters, you're getting baptized. You might say the wrong thing in the waters, that nervousness. Everyone's going to watch you. You might feel weird, but I'm getting you in that water. And we get to pray about it because there's acknowledgement. This is a symbol. We didn't have the deacons sprinkle in sin-washing soap, right? This is an acknowledgement. I told him, you've already been saved by Jesus. Jesus has already saved and cleansed him, and he knows that. This is a symbol to say, hey, look, I've decided to follow Jesus. And as the church, you get to observe this. This is why we do the videos. This is why I overly explain it, because you're making a commitment. This isn't just to navel gaze and say, oh, neat, another spiritual thingy that we're doing. You're making a commitment to Mike, church. If you're a committed member of this church, if you're a Christian, you're committing to Mike to say, I'm going to walk alongside you as one body, unified by the spirit of Jesus, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that unifies us eternally as one body. And so as Mike comes out of these waters, as Mike is committing to Jesus, you're making commitment to him to say, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow Jesus with you as we all seek to be his disciples. Amen? Amen. Amen. Mike, you want to step in the waters with me? Careful, it's wet. Hi. Mike, what is your profession of faith? 
Jesus is Lord. That's right. And you acknowledge that this is not the end, but a beginning of a life seeking Jesus as Lord, a life following him as his disciple. Yes. That's right. Okay. Church, you're committing to Mike, right? You're saying, yes, I'm choosing to follow Jesus as a disciple alongside you. Amen? Amen. All right. Mike, given all of this, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ, praise to new life with him. There is, there's not enough words to describe the depth of what's happening here, but we're going to take a moment to pray and then worship over it, thanking the Lord that he changes lives, that Jesus is everything. Say, Jesus is everything. Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for what this represents, for this symbol that you've given us, this uh, opportunity of obedience to look to you, to proclaim that you are Lord, that Jesus is Lord. God, we pray for anyone here who hasn't made that profession, who doesn't know you, that your spirit would be turning their eyes to you, that we would look to you. We would allow the things of earth to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace, your great love for us. Thank you for Mike's testimony. May his testimony continue to ripple to see your kingdom come and your will be done for what you've done, Father. Amen. Let's worship. If you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in Luke 18 and Luke 19. But uh, first, we for that we've got some work to do. Um, this morning, we're gonna kind of kind of get hit some things together that might feel a lot like work, uh, which is good. It's hardest kind of work to deal with because it involves surrender, and surrender is quite hard. And so, if you came here just wanting to be filled with warm fuzzies, uh, then, then I'm sorry to disappoint, but, but we're going to fight for being obedient to Christ this morning. And that might be a somber way to start, but it is what it is. Uh, surrender is so important because we're all surrounded by a culture wanting and needing more beyond what we already have, beyond what we need. That's kind of a cry of, of Western society uh, is to gain more, obtain more, to be enough, to be better. There's never a ceiling for enough. We have to have more. And that creates in us what many scholars are referring to, sociologists, psychologists, a scarcity mentality. Say scarcity mentality. Scarcity mentality. Um, before... I, <laughs> I'm not going to bore you and unpack that with all sorts of research from our culture. You can look it up, but I think we all intuitively get this. We know what it means to want more, and we know what it means to, in our hearts, be afraid that we don't have enough. Our image isn't enough. Our uh, Instagram post didn't get enough likes. Our financial account isn't enough. Our kids aren't to the degree to which we wish they were. Our marriage isn't enough. Our job isn't. There's something that's not there, and it creates in us a scarcity mentality. I want to start with Genesis 3. Uh, we talk about this every Sunday, but it all comes back. God created a good world, and he said it's good. He created it. He said humans are very good. We are created to live in his image, to 
be fruitful and multiply, to live in the generous gift that he gave us, the earth, to dwell in it, to enjoy it. God is a wonderful host who gives us the world, and he asks that we obey and trust him, and we choose to rebel, and we decide, hey, we're going to get away from this. Evil comes in and says, wait, did God really say this? Nah, you don't need to listen to him. You need to listen to something else. You could be like God. You could decide good from evil. You could bear all of life's decisions on your shoulders. Your destiny, your understanding, your perception, it's all on you. So work at it. Think about it. You can figure it out. It's the lie that God is not enough. We can't really trust him to be a good, generous father, a good host of this party of existence. We can't trust him to do that. We need to trust ourselves instead. So we give into this. We rebel against the Lord, and we see this all through history. But the Lord's posture, his response, is generosity. He continues to respond in generous ways, even in ways that at first glance could look to us harsh and angry, intense. If you've been reading through the whole scripture with us this year, God is generous. He's continuing to give of himself, to give us things that we don't deserve. This is where words like mercy and grace and forgiveness come into place because he is generous. He's a generous host of all existence. When you look around the world, your life, my life, everyone, you'll see ripples of this disorder, this chaos, this scarcity mentality. That's what evil is trying to pull us into. Disorder, chaos, disunity, ripping us apart. The devil, the father of lies, as Jesus calls him in John 8, is constantly sowing this lie of scarcity. Did God really say? Is he really going to? No, it's on you. You got to take care. You do you. Take care of yourself. You need more. You got to do better. And so as the devil spins those lies, we grow more and more afraid, more in this scarcity mentality, and everything starts orbiting us, a self-orbit, trying to bear the weight and the glory of existence that we can't bear. It crushes us. But Jesus is Lord. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. He calls us to a different way, a way in which we trust in the abundance of the Father, not in a pattern of needing to kill our brother because their gift is better than ours, or needing to kill our neighbors because we need their land, or needing to hoard and obtain and be the greatest superpower in the world because we need to be protected, we need to be more. Maybe those things are bad in themselves, but they create a posture that says, it's all about us. We need to be more. We need to grow to be great. As shepherds, more than anything, when we meet, uh, sometimes on Wednesdays, sometimes on Fridays, uh, we meet enough, at least twice a week, lately once a week for some very scheduling reasons. But in general, the shepherds we meet, sorry, I didn't want to be dishonest, guys, um, but we meet at least once a week. And what we're always wrestling with is how do we, how do we get, how do we push, how do we persuade, how do we exegete the word so that you, all who listen, would look to Jesus? Not to how great Adam's tucked in shirt looks, not how funny and quippy David can be, not how loud, not, not having to slow or speed your brain up to keep up with David because he's moving so fast. Like, no, no, no. Look to Jesus. How do we look to Jesus to believe that he is everything? with all parts of our lives, to surrender to him and live a life as his disciples, to be people whom he bought with his blood, whom he unified with his spirit, empowered with his spirit, so that we could live like him. Tuesday is midterms. And I don't, I don't love 
being in a position of making it sound like, uh, let me, oof, Lord help me. I don't want, I don't want to be the pastor that tells you how to vote because I think there's a deeper, more important thing to look at. And so you're not going to hear the shepherds up here say this, this, and this. There are issues. There are issues that as they continue to grow, you will hear us preach about. There are so many issues that I don't see Jesus in that I think we need to take a step back. There are issues that, that are very complex but still have a pretty straight answer. We have very thick opinions about abortion. We have very thick opinions about gender issues. Not just opinions, but we believe that God created male and female. We believe that God created... Hold on, hold on. Uh, we believe that King Jesus is the one who calls out what is right and what is good. We believe that it's not okay to kill innocent children. We do, we believe in these things. Now, it's also so much more complicated than that. Because if you know someone who struggles with transgender and transgenderism, or some parents who's going through that psychological tension with their children, or you know someone who's, who's walking away from the faith because they're gay, or you know someone who has to have an abortion, or who's tense and feeling with it, it's a little more complicated than just saying, this is how you should vote. And in fact, if you're like me, you've probably never walked up to a ballot and get to check yes or no on your specific issues. So, Lord help me, we have to talk about this a little differently. I can't just stand up here and say, here's your list of things to do. No, instead, here's what we want to shepherd. We want to recognize that we are all so scared of being right or being wrong, or we're all so tense about feeling that we've equated things to what we want. Listen to me. The big plan of the cosmos is not to put the right leader in place, as if George W. or Clinton or Obama or Trump or Biden was the solution, or that if this house gets this many more people or this place gets this many more, that has never been God's plan. God's plan was all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Amen? But there's still a duty we have to follow Jesus. And this is where it gets complicated. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to acknowledge the midterm elections, whether you've been really into it or whether you've been a little passive towards it, it creates some tension with people. Already, you have all sides saying that someone else is rigging the election. Already, that's happening. So no matter what, we can't trust anything. Already, you have uh, toll booth workers and toll booths being threatened with their lives, being threatened with, with bomb threats. Already, you're seeing foreign policies raise up, and you've got rumors of this war and rumors of this war, and we can't, we can't be sure exactly what's going on with Russia and Ukraine or North and South Korea. There is chaos everywhere. Church, hear me. From the beginning, evil has worked with chaos and disorder. And amongst you believers, if you claim to be a Christian, I promise you, evil's fighting for your chaos and disorder. To look down on someone else because they don't have your political ideals. To question whether or not someone's really of the faith because they might view something different than you. Here's what we want to shepherd. We have to look to Jesus first. Here's why. There's, there's a tension in Scripture. Pull up those two verses. There's a tension in Scripture where Proverbs 3 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your understandings. Because Scripture acknowledges that your heart's wrong. Your emotions are wrong. Your will, your ideals, the things you think are right, they could be wrong. You could really, 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 really believe something and it be wrong. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understandings. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then Jesus comes and he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he'll remind you of everything I've taught you. This morning, we have a sermon on Jesus and generosity and we're going to get there. But first, we have to deal with this tension. 
that we might think we're right. We might think we know exactly what needs to happen in the political realm. You've claimed on your social media, your political beliefs, you're sharing all the memes, you're accidentally crushing people having no idea. By the way, scripture has a word for sin that is sin that you don't even realize you're doing, right? Who knows, right? What you could accidentally be rippling in someone else's life. You know who does know? The Lord. And so here's what I want to shepherd. Here's what we want to shepherd more than anything, that we first take a step back and have this posture and say, Jesus, your spirit promises us to teach us all things. You promise to bring to memory all things that you've taught us. You tell us that you're the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through you. So church, we're going to pray this morning. That's what we're going to do. And, and if, if you're expecting some much more deep, here's your list of things to vote for, I'm sorry, but that's, that's not what we can do. Because I don't feel like I have the authority to tell you exactly what to do in the complexities of our system, because that assumes that our system is right. In fact, the word that the New Testament authors use for the world is an understanding that it is broken. The cosmos is disorder. It's rebellious against God. That's a constant posture of Paul and Jesus when they use this understanding of world. And so I don't think that I can just assume that there's just these exact ways to approach our complex structures of government. Here's what I do know. All authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus. All authority. And Jesus is making all things new. Jesus. Not you. Not our government. Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put some ideas on, on screen to be praying about. One of them specifically is just this simple phrase, Lord, give us faith to be humble and humility to be faithful. If we've seen anything in the last few weeks of bringing Jesus' life, we've seen that Jesus reveals things to some, and to some people they're blind. Is it possible that you could be really, 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 really passionate about something and be blind? Yes. And wouldn't it be the playground of the devil? Follow me here. Whoever wins whatever election, we are forever now doubting if it was rigged or not. No matter what happens in, in the world. I've talked to a guy, a pastor from Ukraine. He said, you know, the hardest thing is the propaganda because we are having people in Russian churches being told to believe something that's not true and then coming over to the Ukraine. There's just lies everywhere. And so we can't even unify with other Christians in Russia because they're being lied to. The devil works with lies. Is it possible you're believing a lie? Yes, sin is crouching at your door. I'm begging you. I'm shepherding you as intensely as I can. We must have humility, and we must trust that God's Spirit will give us wisdom as He promises. He will teach us all things. He will bring to memory all He's taught. Jesus says that He leaves us with His peace, not as the world gives, but as He gives. And through His Spirit, we seek that peace in this time. A lot more could be said on this topic. We're going to move on. If these are things that you're wrestling with, if there's concerns, tensions in your heart of these things, we'd love to talk to you about them because our primary goal is to look to Jesus, to look to him and live as he called us to live. Uh, and so if there's more to be said here or more that you're struggling with, uh, we invite you to come and talk to us because we're wrestling with it and looking to Jesus as well. So we'll do that together. This scarcity mentality ripples all through scripture. It leads to fear, selfishness, self-orbiting lifestyle, and necessarily results in sin and death. I alluded to it earlier, but it's the same thing that led Cain to kill Abel. It's the same thing that led all the issues in Genesis of instead of being fruitful and multiplying, they're killing each other, and eventually we see they follow the patterns of Canaanites. They're sacrificing their kids. They're creating idol poles. It's just terrible. The scarcity mentality. It's not enough. But Jesus shows us a different way. Jesus comes and shows us the most full Father's generosity. In fact, Jesus is the gift. Very famous verse in John, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he 
say it again. Gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In John literature, Johannine literature, uh, he cares a lot about this motif of gift. You'll see it over and over. When we slowly read through the book of John, you'll hear about abide quite a bit. But there's also a theme he has a lot about gifts, giving and receiving. Um, we had several verses this morning. We don't have time to talk about looking at First John and John. But John cares that we understand that this is a gift. We're going to come back to that. But first, we want to read two stories. Because if scarcity mentality is the tension, then as a good Westerner, you want to argue, what's the equation? What's the opposite? All right? If this is bad, I got to do this thing that's good. And praise God that the scripture doesn't always fall into our perfect equations. You know, uh, that's probably why I'm not the three-point guy. Um, just read scripture. We see what Jesus says. I think it's so great that Luke puts these two stories paralleled right next to each other. Uh, it is just so beautiful. There is so much to say about these two stories. I've got more, more notes than I normally do. We're, we're all kinds of nervous about time, but praise God, he's going to speak and we're going to walk through it. Open your Bibles to Luke 18. We're going to read from the Word of God and we're going to wrestle with this. It's a famous story called The Rich Young Ruler. Say The Rich Young Ruler. What a title. You think that dude knew that he was going to be known for that for the rest of human history? Like, wherever that guy's at, uh, who knows, right? Maybe he became a disciple. We don't know. But he's right. We read scripture. He is the rich young ruler. That's who he is. The unnamed, wealthy, young ruler. This is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all tell this story. Um, we get the fact that he's a wealthy young ruler from a combination of the stories. Luke's actually one that let us, lets us know he was a ruler. More on that in a minute. Matthew kind of emphasizes that he was young, uh, emphasized some of the Jewish laws there. Uh, Mark just kind of tells it straight, and it's interesting how this story folds. Mark and Luke actually read pretty similar to each other. Matthew adds a few more details. You don't care about the Bible geek stuff. Let's read it together. Starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He comes, this, this rich young ruler, he comes, first of all, he's a ruler, which means we think about like one who is over a whole bunch of people. That's true. But in an honor shame culture, as Adam talked about last week, he was infamous. And one of the keys to understand the New Testament is to understand honor shame culture, because an honor shame culture mixed with a limited good society is kind of separate from how we view the world. It's a little confusing to us. See, we believe that there is stuffs everywhere. And that's why we get so confused and argue about oil, because in our minds, there's oil everywhere. And those who've ever worked with the oil industry know there's not oil everywhere. It's actually complicated. But we believe that if I go to Walmart and buy grapes, then it doesn't really harm anyone because there's just grapes for everybody, right? It's so confusing when there's not toilet paper or popcorn at Walmart because there's an abundance of stuff. That's the world we live in in the West. In their culture, they lived in what's called limited goods. They just had a natural posture of understanding. Things were limited. And if you had honor, it was because someone else didn't have honor because honor's limited, right? It's not that, oh, there's just honor for everyone. You get a car and you get a car and you, that's not how it worked, right? It's all limited. And so in this understanding, when he's called a, a ruler, he has honor. He has fame. In fact, I, I just think it's interesting uh, as God ripples teachings through the ages. When you think of this guy, he's a rich young ruler. This guy is marked by wealth, youth, and fame. That's the good life in the West, is it not? I mean, come on, maybe in church you'd say, no, 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 there's other things. But honestly, if you could just live out your wildest dreams and fantasies, are you not 
wealthy? Are you not younger and healthy? Are you not infamous? Do we not uphold the people in our culture who have these things, right? Or, or if someone has two-thirds of them, we say, well, if only they were better looking, right? Or, well, if only he had some money. He's really good to look at, but he's, you know, this is this tension. I think it's interesting in our culture as scripture permeates ahistorically. We read this like, whoa, this guy should have, he should have it all. He's got fame, he's got wealth, he's got youth all on his side, and he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, which this phrase, good teacher, implies, hey, you've got something I don't have, and you've got some knowledge that could lift me up, I need some of that, and we're going to compare that to Zacchaeus here in a minute, but he just calls him good teacher. I love this phrase, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or in Matthew, he says, what good deed, what can I do? I've got all this stuff but I need more. There's not enough. It's not enough. There's not enough to go around. What do I got to do to get life of the ages, which is the translation from Greek and Hebrew into this idea of eternal life. The life that permeates all of lives, the life above lives that ripples beyond life and death. What do I do to obtain this? How do I rise above what I've already got? What good deed? It's all on me. He wants to obtain it. He wants to produce this is what scarcity mentality does to us. In fact, I took this out of my notes because I didn't have a place for it. We're going to say it right now. This mentality gets real for all of us. We've got to produce. We've got to be more. We've got to equate something. I never get tired of preaching on this because I see it in all of our lives, this particularly in my life. Um, they're, 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 I could tell you two different stories right now. I could tell you a story of all God's done in the last 10 days at the Missouri Baptist Convention annual meeting, uh, seeing all God moving in Mike's life, all the ways God worked out this circumstance where, where we were texted randomly to say, hey, I feel like God wants me to sell you my house. And we're like, we are not planning on moving. We can't afford that. And then God works out. And now we own a house. We're homeowners. And I could tell you all these awesome things God has done. Or I could tell you what I actually struggle with is all the ways it's incomplete. The doorknobs I haven't got done. How annoying the cat doors were to install. How I still haven't finished the fence. How I'm still trying to figure out washer dryer tensions. I've got all these homeowner woes and the homeowner people are like, yeah, that's just homeowner stuff. But I lose sleep over and become a jerk because I've got to do more. I've got to be more. I've got to obtain. I'm not a good enough husband, father, pastor if I don't get this fence installed. So I better yell at my wife over. Do you relate at all? This is scarcity mentality. I've got to be more. I've got to do more. And then this guy comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, how do I become awesomer? How do I acquire eternal life? How do I rise above? And Jesus cuts him right to the core. No one's good but the Father. I may be a good teacher, but that's not your issue. You're seeing me as someone's going to give you something to make you better. You're just trying to be good and obtain more. The only one who's good is the Father. Tove. He created all good things. This is why we say several Sundays, you want the good life? How would you know it was good? No one's good but the Father. He created all things. God is good. He's the objective source of goodness. If the good things in your life don't somehow orbit the Lord, they're going to corrupt and fall apart, which is the lie that evil wants. Evil wants you to spin your reels for 70, 80 years on things that seem good, but are really just your interpretation so that you die unhappy, unpleasant, eternally separated from God forever. And then it ripples into your kids and your kids' kids or everyone around you. This is the lie of the enemy. That's why he's the father of lies. He plays the long game. He's better at it than you. Back to the notes. Sorry. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness on your father and mother. What's Jesus quoting here? The Big Ten. Say the Big Ten. Say it like you're excited about it. The Big Ten. Right? Do you know? Interesting. Do you, is there something interesting about what he's quoting? Does anyone know? 
He's quoting half of them, the ones that relate to humans, love your neighbors, yourself sort of stuff, right? It's almost like Jesus sees his heart and draws him in. He's Socratically pulling him in. Yeah. Socratically, that was wrong. Jesus can't be using the Socrates method because he kind of predates that. Sorry, what a weird phrase. No one remember that I said that. That was weird. Jesus is pulling him in, right? And he says, he says, and the guy says, I've done all that. Since my youth, since I was such a young child, I've done these great things. I'm so good. Look at me. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack. Just one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Jesus cuts right to it. Hey, you know what your God is? You know the whole first half, first five of the Ten Commandments you're missing? The whole do not have any other gods before me. The whole don't make any graven images. The whole look to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You're completely missing that. And if, if you were to follow that, you would release this scarcity mentality, this belief that you could obtain, that you could acquire, that you could produce, that you have to hedge yourself in, that everything around you is closing in. There's no abundance. You've got to have it for yourself. You must release it and believe that there's an abundance greater than you, that something more than you is in control, is in authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. So follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He was extremely rich, so he was sad. Bummer. Jesus says, this is what you need. He's unwilling to meet Jesus there and follow Jesus because this scarcity mentality, this wealth has such a grip on him. So he left sad because he's unwilling to surrender Jesus. Only God can save. His wealth doesn't save this dude. His, his infamy doesn't save him. His youthfulness doesn't save him. There's nothing he's acquired that can save him. And that's an easy thing to say in church, an easy thing for us to say amen to. But I know how the devil works. And I know that's something you struggle with, no matter how much we try to hide it. It's a tension in our lives. Evil wants to slowly pull us away from looking to Jesus, so we look to ourselves. So every part of our life orbits us. And then it all comes closer and closer and crushes us under that orbit because we weren't meant to sustain the glory of orbiting things. God is meant to sustain all glory. He's the one who everything should orbit. So Jesus says, release your grip on these things and follow me. And he left sad. Jesus will lead you to generosity as you follow, or money will lead you to generosity as you follow Jesus, or it will be a barrier to you and leave you sad and unable to follow Jesus. That's why Jesus says earlier in, in Matthew, he says, can't serve two masters, love one and hate the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Jesus literally uses an understanding from, from the Greco-Roman world of, of, of a, a, a power, a God. He talks about money as if it has power and authority over us to creep its way in, to control us, to naturally create idolatry. Similar language would be used to talk about Baal and Asherah, things to talk about before. Jesus uses that phrase. Sorry, I'm not preaching on those verses, but I'm going to throw them out anyway. Jesus uses that phrase to acknowledge it's not just money. So many of us would say, please don't talk about money because make sure you say the phrase. I've got it in my notes. You got to say it as a pastor. Money's not the problem. Don't think money itself is evil because some of you can be wealthy. You can climb above middle class and be really rich and it's okay. That's fine. But Jesus says more about money than most anything else. He cares a lot about how you approach money. In fact, he gives a lot of warnings to money. So before we package it in this little, oh, money's not the problem. Jesus is pretty concerned with money. 
And he's very concerned with generosity. And so I'm not here to abuse anyone who's wealthy and has a lot of money. That's stupid. That's not the point. Jesus cares about someone looking to him and opening their hands. And the outflow of that will be generosity. Because we have an abundant host who has created us and generously given us everything. And Jesus lives in a world where he can say, why would you worry about these things? Do you see the birds? Do you see the flowers? God takes care of them. There's an abundant creator. There's an abundant father who is good. So why do you live in the scarcity? There are so many traps money gets us into. I have a list here, but we can skip them. We know the traps of money. I mean, come on. Or money, sex, and power. Those are the big three, right? Name some problem in history that didn't come back to money, sex, and power. That's it. This is our world. And Jesus has a lot to say about money. I'm thankful that as we wrestle with this tension of the rich young ruler and we want to just really unpack this, Luke just goes on and tells another story that I think is really helpful. It's in uh, Luke 19. It's the story of Zacchaeus. Quick, raise your hand if you can spell Zacchaeus off the top of your hand. Head. I need to know. Who can't? Do it. I want to hear it. So close. Wait, maybe you're right. (laughs) There's two C's. Listen, I have misspelled this so many bad ways. Google and Apple don't even know what I'm doing in my notes. They're just like, we've got no. If I had a dime for every time I copied what I was trying to say and then went to literally Google.com and tried to get Google to be like, okay, this is what you meant, right? Um, This word is so complicated. When uh, my wife was, uh, I think she was in early high school. uh, That's not when she was my wife, but I knew her. And we were in her basement, and there was a book, uh, a box of books. They were kids' books. I don't know why they're in her basement. But having not, like, Grown up as much in church as I did, Nikki saw one of these books and she said, who's Zacchese? And I will forever see the word Zacchaeus as Zacchese, and I hope you do as well. Zacchese. Here we go, Luke 19, 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named... Zacchese, thank you. Zacchaeus, you all are listening, this is good. He was a chief tax collector. Do you know how often people are called chief tax collectors in Scripture? Exactly once. Thank you, Luke. It's a crazy phrase. Chief tax collector. More on that in a minute. And he was rich. Now we'll talk about it now. So what happened was when Rome, Greece, when they take over a culture, right, what they would do is they needed to get taxes and money from them. But they didn't know the streets. They didn't know the culture. And they didn't just want to come and poke everyone in the face with a sword. So what they did is they were brilliant. They said, here, we're going to bring someone in. One of the insiders we're going to bring to be like us, and we will pay them so well that they'll get over this whole dishonorment thing of how you're completely going against your whole culture and tribe. You'll forget about the Yahweh stuff because we're going to give you lots of money, right? And so then these Hebrews, they would become tax collectors, and they are bad. Like, they're just, I've just seen as fun, if you've read the Old Testament, like, this goes so against everything God wanted. They're saying, we're not just going to assimilate, we're going to become like the culture, and we're going to extort taxes. And more, they got more money if they extorted taxes beyond what Romans said. And many of them did that. That's how they became so wealthy. That's why they were hated. They weren't just supporting this culture that was squashing them and taking away what they felt like was their God-given right and land. But also, they were extorting their people to get more money out of them. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Luke goes out of his way to say, he's not the regular type. He's the real bad kind. He's the chief of the bad guys, right? Excuse me. Did you get wet? I've got extra wet mouth right now. I'm so pumped about chief tax collectors. How much would scarcity mentality 
and the love of wealth have to grip someone's heart to do this. Man, it's incredible. So, uh, chief tax collector. He was seeking to see Jesus. Verse 3. Seeking to seek Jesus. To see Jesus. But, on account of the crowd, he could not. Because he was a... He was small in stature. Zacchaeus was a... A wee little man. And a wee little man was he. I don't know. Whatever. So, he was a short guy. So he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him. Stop singing the song in your head. We'll just read the scripture. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by. Jesus was coming. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus was a short guy, so he climbed a tree. He's trying to seek Jesus. He's trying to seek him in some way that seems a little different than the rich young ruler. Do you feel it? He's, 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 he's got some skin in the game. He's not just looking for something for himself. He's having some humility. He's climbing a tree. He's doing things to try to seek Jesus out. And then when Jesus sees him, he says, hey, you know that big honor of the Messiah spending time with people? You know that huge honor in a Hebrew culture of tabling with people? Like we talked about last week, the banquets, the parties, people sitting and having meals here. Jesus says, come down. I'm coming to your house. I'm coming to your house. There are some of you in here today, some of you watching from home, where Jesus has constantly been saying, I'm coming to your house. And you can respond to him and welcome him in faith, as Scripture tells us, or you can keep running and keep saying, nah, this isn't my Sunday. This isn't my time. You're not my flavor of pastor, whatever it is. But what happened to Zacchaeus? Jesus said, I'm coming to your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the other people around, they grumbled. He has gone into the guests of a man who is a sinner. They're so upset. Jesus hanging out with sinners. And the Messiah can't do this. He's holy. If he takes his, he'll get messed up by them and he'll be gross. And why would he ever spend time with sinners? Thank God Jesus spends time with sinners. Amen? Man. Others are standing up and they're fired up that Jesus is reaching out to sinners. Are you tabling with sinners? We're going to talk about this here in a minute with generosity, but... When's the last time you had a meal with someone who was fundamentally different than you? Someone who believed different than you? Someone who you, who the culture might say, ah, that person's off. They're too far gone. I don't know. This is clearly Jesus' posture. Why? Verse 10, skipping ahead. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Is that, is that our posture as a church? As individuals? Are we tabling and welcoming people? You want to know what it looks like to love your neighbors yourself? You eat every day. I promise. Raise your hand if you don't eat every day. Come on, you eat every day. You love yourself enough to eat food. Love your neighbor and eat with them. I challenge you this week, church, pray that God puts someone in your heart that's different than you. Bring them over. Bring them over and eat with them. Say, hey, I want to make, I want to, I want to spend time with you. Make, take them out for lunch. Take them out for breakfast, uh, for coffee, whatever you do. Table with them. The generosity of God is seen so quickly in the story that Jesus, he tables with sinners, people that don't deserve it. More on that here in a minute. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Zacchaeus calls him Lord. This isn't the word master that was used in the previous story. This is the word that is used for Lord through the rest of Scripture. When the disciples refer to him as Lord, when other people, it's someone who has, who's esteemed as high, who's someone that is, it has authority that you submit to, right? He has a surrender to him. He's not looking to take from him. He's acknowledging, standing before him, just like the disciples, just like Mary when she watched it. He just, Lord, you are Lord. And he says, Lord, 
Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This does not connect to Hebrew scripture at all. There's actually only one law where you give half, and that's like for if you stole, if you stole a cow, I believe. Does anyone know this off the top of their head? I'm missing it. One of the laws was half. You repaid them half if you took their cow, because taking their cow is like utter destruction. I don't know. But it was a big deal. Come on! I worked hard on that. Anyway, so there's this tension. But this guy's going so far beyond. He's going to give half, and then if he's upset anyone, he's certainly defrauded people fourfold. When Zacchaeus meets Jesus, he's marked with generosity. Period. To know Jesus is to live generously. That's, that's, what else does the story mean? This isn't a secret like, oh, I'm going to get you to give money. It's just the facts. If you know Jesus, it's marked by generosity. Zacchaeus calls him Lord. His immediate response is generous. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. There's not a huge, obvious repentance we see here as some deep theological thing. There's no verse we point at to here that we read all the time. Remember Jesus and Zacchaeus? The story itself is to change your mind. He's a fundamentally different guy. He's able to say, I'm going to live generously because you are Lord. I don't need to hold I don't need to hoard. I can get away from the scarcity mentality because there is an abundant father who's going to take care of me. The gospel does what thousands of sermons on generosity cannot do. I think this is on screen. It actually changes your heart. The gospel releases you from scarcity mentality, your captivity to money, and into abundance of the Father, making you love others, delighting to see their needs met and introduced to the gospel. Zacchaeus didn't need to sit under hundreds of awesome sermons on generosity. He experienced the gift of Jesus, salvation, and it transformed to see the world, and it transformed him to see the world differently, to live generously. He saw the gift of abundance. For God so loved the world, John 3:16, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Lean in. We are Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was despised and unwelcomed because of his sin and rebellion. But Jesus comes to him. He invites him in. We deserve separation from God. And he gives us his grace. He gives us his gift of salvation. He is generous. Zacchaeus climbed a tree to try to get to Jesus. Jesus dies later hanging on a tree so that we could be with Jesus. He gave his life. He is generous. We get salvation leading to joy and a life through his gift of grace and love because Jesus got the scorn, the pain, the death, the rejection for our sake. Jesus is the gift. Say, Jesus is the gift. As we move to close, I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, and then we're going to get real practical about some things, because to follow Jesus is to live generously. That's the response. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You can open to it. It's going to be on the screen. If it's too tiny for you, just listen, because the vast majority of Christian history, they just heard the word read to them. So that's fine. You can just hear it read to you. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead. In your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, the sons of disobedience. You had scarcity mentality. That's what he's saying. You had the lies of evil. You had your own desires. You were dying in your sin because you were trying to do it on your own. You could be like God. You could decide good from evil. This is it. Paul's wrapping up this whole sermon in one sentence. Thank you, Paul. He's a better preacher than I am. You were dead in your trespass and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the powers of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. We don't have time for this, but the word grace that's being used here is charis. Say charis. Right, there's a, there's a verb form there, it's charisma, right? This word is the most often used word in, in New Testament for grace, but also for forgiveness. And it's also for the root understanding of gift. When you have grace, it's the word grace, but it means you're given a gift. So it's this connection of forgiveness, of gift, and of, of grace all coming together. And he says, for by grace you have been saved. This gift of the Father, this forgiveness, you've been saved through your faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift, same word, of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Where are you at this morning? Are you still living in this scarcity mentality of needing to hoard, protect, gather, tighten up? Are you just pushing away the message, finding a, a quick thing to do on your phone, finding a way to, to look at the clock because you don't want to mess with these things. You don't want to open up and say, maybe I could be wrong about something here. Like, where are you at? Where is scarcity mentality controlling you, leading to selfishness and self-orbit? Or do you have an abundance mentality, trusting in the great Father who has given us all of his abundance? We need Jesus. To be saved by Jesus is to accept his gift, forgiveness, and grace in faith. And to have faith in Jesus is to live generously, trusting in the Father's good abundance. And I can hear it. We're going to start talking practically about generosity. And you're going to say, what about, what about all these fake generosity? What about the problem? What if I give everything away? What about the person who gives it all away and then dies of starvation? Stop. Come, come now. Like, we've all seen phony generosity or adulterated generosity. Do you know someone who gives gifts with a thousand strings attached? I mean, we're coming up on a season where we give a lot away. Is it possible that evil adulterates this season of thanksgiving and giving to be ultimately about us? I feel better. I've obtained something because I'm giving away. I'm so benevolent. I've spent so much money on Christmas gifts. That's not the generosity of Jesus. How would you know? How would you know if you're being truly generous? We open our hands and we lean on His Spirit who teaches us all things. His Spirit who brings to memory what Jesus has taught us. We listen to the Spirit and then we obey. We need Jesus. To be saved by Jesus is to accept His gift, forgiveness, and grace in faith. 
To have faith in Jesus is to live generously, trusting in the abundance of the Father. I'm going to make this real specific. I've got a list up here, and we're going to talk about some things. Sorry if it's too itty-bitty for you. Here's some practical things, and we're going to unpack these. Because again, when we talk about generosity, there's a tension here, right? Like, like I'm talking about living generously, and as soon as I give practical applications, we're all, because of scarcity mentality, because of the lies of enemy, you're going to immediately have reasons why you don't want to do anything on this list. And I, I don't care what it is. I don't care what the tension you have on it is. You can trust that we are praying through this and trying to desire. How do we shepherd this? And if you think I'm wrong, let's talk about it. Because point proven right here. Zacchaeus trusts in Jesus generously. The rich young ruler doesn't trust in Jesus, and he goes away sad because he's wealthy. The Bible's trying to tell us something about wealth and living generously. Simply put, uh, I like to think about time and energy, grace and forgiveness, money, and stuffs and things. With your time and energy, maybe you start recognizing, hey, To follow Christ is to serve. The Bible says you're gifted. If you know Jesus, you've been gifted in the Spirit. And that is to serve for the common good, for His kingdom. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. Read it. Are you giving of your time? Or is it my time, my busyness, my schedule? That's what evil wants. He wants all of us to be so busy that we don't have time for each other. We can't be patient because we're so hurried. Maybe this week you just find someone you say, Hey man, how's your relationship with Jesus going? Just text someone. Give them that time of your heart. Say, hey, I want to show you the grace, the forgiveness, the gift of the Lord through being generous with my time. And just say, hey, how's your relationship with Christ going? Maybe you write a letter to someone. Man, those of you who randomly give my family letters, I cannot express what that means to you. I mean, I'm a words and touch person in general, but it does so much to me when I open a little card and there's a small gift card in there, whatever, or just you thinking, thank you for specifically doing this. It means so much. Maybe that's you this week. Say, I'm going to give of my time and my energy to let someone else know I appreciate them, I love them. Grace and forgiveness. We're going to talk about the words charis and charisma. Maybe you listen to someone who's different than you. You give them the grace. You give them the generosity to actually hear them. Not to just block them on Facebook. Not just to dishonor them behind closed doors, but you actually listen to them. You table with them. Pray with them. Hey, I know we see this differently. Can we look to Jesus together right now? Oh, you don't know Jesus? Well, I believe Jesus has all authority. Maybe we could talk about these things together. Maybe we could wrestle with it. Maybe there is a God who's trying to teach us. Pray with them. Money. Here it comes. Calm down. Give to the church. I am not super comfortable being the guy that talks about this. And after years, you've heard me make all the jokes like, ah, the church just wants my money, right? I don't like that. I don't like the tension there. I can't get past the fact that when we know Jesus, we live generously. And Jesus' hands and feet are His church, His body. We are His body. And if you don't know, it costs money to keep this building going. It costs money for us to be serving each other in different ways. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes service, but it takes money. And this isn't, oh, we're, we're really, we're down in the budget, so i got to give a sermon on generosity. This is what God's teaching this week. Look at our plan. Jesus talks so much about money. We don't even have time to talk about render to Caesar what's Caesar's or, or the, the widow's coin. Like We're just talking about these stories. You give to the church because this is where his kingdom comes and his will be done. God banked all of his plan on his son coming and dying so that through our faith in him we'd come together as one body, his church, and that we would live like Jesus, empowered by his spirit, so that others would see and come and believe. And all those people live generously. Read Acts 2. 
To respond to Jesus is to live generously. If you don't have a posture of giving to the church, I would ask you, why not? Because I know a youth group that has a budget that consistently sees kids coming to know Christ and consistently is growing every year since I've been here. Six, seven plus years now, it's continued growth. And you might remember the youth group that struggled. You don't have to raise your hand, but there was, a, there was a time when the youth group was all sorts of struggling. But we've continued to see God bless it. And they have a yearly budget, and it continues to increase because we're seeing His kingdom come and His will be done in that. Our children's ministry, 200% increase in the last year. Why? Because we preach the I'm certain that when students show up on Wednesday nights and on Sundays, they're going to hear the gospel. I'm certain with every parent event, every marriage event, when I'm preaching, when Adam's preaching, whoever's preaching, you're going to hear the gospel because it's the gospel that transforms. I don't need to tell you to be generous, although I'm doing it. The gospel tells you. King Jesus tells you. The reason you give to the church and not just some parachurch organization or not just some, some nice, good-willed function is because the church is proclaiming, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We have a financial council in our church that rigorously tries to meet and wrestle through. What are we doing with our money? This is why you see us pray every Sunday about the offerings. Because we submit to God and say, what do we do with this money? It costs money to exist in the West. Here we are. What do we do with it? Do you have a posture? Maybe you need to set a number. We could talk about tithes in Scripture, and we could talk about numbers. In general, I'll just challenge you. You get paid monthly. You get paid bi-monthly, weekly. What percentage? I mean, we're in the West. Everything's an equation. Maybe you need to say, all right, God, I'm going to trust you. 5%. 5% this, this month. 10%. 20%. Whatever it is. Are you even asking God? Or are you just like, ah, no, nah, I, don't, I don't need to do that. We've been, we've been eight percenters for years. We've been 12 percenters for years. We don't need to talk to God about it. How would you know if you're not listening to the Spirit, if you're not asking Him how to live generously? To follow Jesus is to generously. Make a special bank account. I've got all these stories of people I know who set aside a bank account. It's really easy to make another bank account, by the way. And you go and you can just dump money in it and pray every month, God, what do you want us to do with this extra money, this extra $25 a week or $50 a month we're putting in it? Man, I wish we had more time. So much of us suffer from what uh, Chip Ingram calls small pie syndrome. Real quick understanding on this. We believe there's a pie, and we've got to give God 10%, or we've got to give whatever. There is no pie. God owns everything. So get out of this idea of, oh, i got to give this, i got to give this. As soon as you're asking, how much should I give, you're missing the point. Why don't you submit to the Lord and say, everything is yours? Now what? Because maybe it's not money. Maybe it's grace and forgiveness that you're struggling to give. Maybe it's time and energy. Maybe it's your stuffs and things. I know some missionaries who were making money from uh, uh, the uh, NAM, from North American Mission Board. And when they were in uh, a city in Honduras, it didn't make sense for them to consistently give 10% of the church because it would cripple the church financially. It would confuse them to have all this money all of a sudden, and then it would cause them to pull back and not give. And they knew this as wisely. They thought, man, we can't just throw a whole bunch of money in this culture, this church, because the West functions differently. You know, America functions different than Honduras. And so they prayed about it. You know what they did? They bought a whole bunch of Bibles and hymnals. In our culture, the church gives you those things, Bibles and hymnals. In these other cultures, you obtain them and you take them to church. It, it's kind of a mark of commitment. It's a way to say Jesus is Lord. If you possess these things, you take them to church. So my friends who are missionaries, they bought a whole bunch of Bibles. They bought a whole bunch of uh, hymnals. And they sold them at absurdly low rates. So these people who are, who are mostly poor could afford them and take them to church. Maybe God's calling you to generosity that is above and beyond what you're used to. Listen, I could connect these dots in so many ways, but just hear the basic understanding. 
We have a scarcity mentality, and we've had it from the beginning of Scripture. Our culture is based off a scarcity mentality. You need more. You need to obtain more. There's never enough. Gosh, there's so many things I could be buying for our house. There's never enough. It's never ending. I've got to do more. I've got to be more. And if that's the lie of the devil, and he's continuing to sow these lies, and he's craftier than you, is it possible that you're right now, your understanding of generosity is limited? Is it possible that you're missing something? Yes. So here's your response this morning. Open your hands to the Lord and ask Him how you live generously. Do you believe that there is an abundant Father who is above all, in all, through all? Do you believe that that even though you're a college student, that's not your excuse? Even though it's your first job, that's not your excuse? Even though you're old and everything's different, that's not your excuse because God calls you to generosity because He is generous. There's all sorts of thoughts in here about being obedient despite feelings. Please don't wait for a feeling because your heart, your feelings can lie to you. God calls us to obedience. And what we see in scriptures when people meet Jesus, they respond with generosity because God so loved the world that he gave. He's a generous God. To know him is to be transformed generosity. Are you giving? Are you living generously? There are so many ways that you can give. We have ways you can give online. You can give to missions. We've got uh, a pot box there or whatever we call that, plate, pot, whatever. You can put, put money in there. You could just start asking, how do I give them my time? God's moving right now. I don't know what the Lord's asking of you. I know we're running late. I know we got a lot going on in service. Man, we prayed for midterms and got political. We had a big, intense baptism. We've still got response to doing announcements, and you've got to go eat lunch. I get all that, but we're going to stop, and we're going to respond to the Lord right now. That's what we're going to do. This is your time. The band's going to come, they're going to play a song, and you're going to do this. Please open your hands and say, God, am I living generously? Where do I have a scarcity mentality? Where am I not obeying you and opening up? Am I, am I like the rich young ruler who's going to keep walking away sad because I'm trying to find my fulfillment in what I can do, what I can accomplish? Or am I going to live more like Zacchaeus? Am I going to see the Lord and open my hands and say, man, there's something bigger than me, something more abundant than me. I don't need to hold on to be scared to try to obtain, but I can give. Truly, Jesus is right when he says it's better to give than receive because he didn't see his self as being like God to be something to hold on to, to possess and lord over, but he gave it up as Philippians 2 tells us. He came down to live like a man. He gave himself up as death on a cross. He hung on a tree so that you don't have to climb trees and go seek him out. He comes to you. He died for your sin. He died for you so that you could live the way you were chosen to live, the way you were created to live. That's a life of generosity, living in his abundance. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask that during this time, you can stand and sing, but, but before you do, can you just take a moment to open your hands? Maybe you pray with your spouse. Maybe you pray with those next to you, or maybe just by yourself, and ask God, will your spirit guide me in generosity? Show us where we're still afraid. Show us where we're lacking. Show us how we ought to be generous and we're not. With our time, with our money, with our energy, with grace and forgiveness, with our stuffs and things. Open your hands and talk to the Lord. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for gathering us together. Thank you for the the waters of baptism. Thank you for for unity in your spirit to pray about challenging things. Thank you for your word teaching us these these countercultural, these these, uh, intense ideas that pull away from things that are intuitive to us. God, we thank you. We're so thankful for everything you've done. I pray right now, apart from, from the lies of evil, the tensions, the, the anything that we might be holding on to, that we would release those things and open our hands and worship you. 
lead us to be a people who are generous, who are welcoming outsiders, generously pointing them to you. May we be a church that is consistently growing in the posture you've already given us to generously give to others, to show them the abundance of you who's given all things. Thank you for loving us so much that you gave your son, that when we believe in him, we don't perish, but we have eternal life. I pray for those who don't know you right now, that they would be moved to give their life to you. Guide us as we respond. Amen. Take time to open your hands. If you need someone to pray with, I'll be down here.